Hebrews chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the Word of God. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Let's pray together. Gracious God, open up your word to us, enlighten our minds, change lives through the preaching of your holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. We ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Some things are better than others. Morse code is great. Radio is better. Radio is great. Television is better. Horse and buggy is great. The automobile is better. On and on we could go. The central theme of the book of Hebrews can be summed up in three words. Jesus is better. There's actually seven passages in the book of Hebrews where comparison is made. Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than Moses. The Levitical priesthood is better than, uh, no, let me say it this way, the Levitical priesthood is inferior to the better priesthood of Melchizedek. That's chapter 7 where we find ourselves today the third passage of comparison. Then later on, the new covenant is better than the old. The heavenly tabernacle is better than the tabernacle of Moses. The sacrifice of Jesus is better than the Levitical sacrifice. And lastly, Mount Zion is better than Mount Sinai. Jesus is better. That's the message of Hebrews. So this is the third uh, uh, passage where comparison is in view. And the entirety of 
Hebrews chapter 7 is given to that theme, comparing the priesthood of Melchizedek with the Levitical priesthood. Now, we come into the service and we think, what has this got to do with me? It's got a lot to do with us. We are just untrained, unschooled Gentiles who have no idea what we're doing. And that's what Ephesians tells us. We were in the dark. We had no covenant. God had not been dealing with Gentiles the way he had with Israel. And they have this inheritance and legacy and we have none of it. And so we're learning of it as we read our Bibles. The theme of the high priest is developed in the next four chapters in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 7 through 10. And we come across this very fascinating character, Melchizedek. More than one of you have told me that you're waiting for us to get to Melchizedek. Well, today's the day. Here we're there. We're looking at him. Yet, so little is said of him in our Bibles. By way of background, there are only three verses given to him in the book of Genesis and one verse in the book of Psalms, and that's it. Four verses in the entire Bible. That's it. You might blink and miss him. Nothing is insignificant in our Bibles. We need to understand that. We have what people refer to as the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and so on, and the minor prophets. And we think that by that designation, some things are more important than others. Don't be deceived. No, they're only major in length or minor in length. And the New Testament bases the doctrine of justification by faith alone, which is at the very heart of the gospel, on half a verse in the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4. In the New Testament, Romans chapter 1 verse 17. Galatians chapter 3 verse 11. And Hebrews chapter 10 verse 38. One half verse from the book of Habakkuk is quoted, and it's the basis of understanding the gospel. Nothing is insignificant. And so, in reading the Old Covenant, when Melchizedek is given four verses, don't be under the false assumption that that means he does not matter. And that's the point. An entire chapter is now given to Melchizedek. Let's go back. Hold your place in Genesis. We'll be back. Excuse me, the book of Hebrews. Hold your finger in Hebrews. Turn to Genesis chapter 14. Are you ready for the three verses? Here we go. Genesis chapter 14. Look with me in verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. That's it. Uh, keep your place. Uh, may, well, we may be back to Genesis, but look, look at the book of Psalms. You've got to have nimble fingers today. Or be fast on your phones. <laughs> Psalm 110, where we look at the other verse that mentions Melchizedek. Psalm 110 talking of the Old Covenant. Psalm 110, verse 1, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now verse 4, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. No explanation, just a declaration. 
And I believe it's a prophetic promise of what would take place later. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And that's it. That's what our old covenant... I've read you all the verses in the Old Testament about Melchizedek. Here it is. What do we do with that? Well, the author of Hebrews does a lot with that. And uh, these are significant themes, and that's what the writer to the Hebrews seeks to draw out. The conclusion is this. This is where we're heading. This is where the author of Hebrews is heading. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that prophecy. He's a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And this was strong encouragement for the people of God, the Hebrews, to whom the letter was addressed, who, was, uh, who were a church under fire, under persecution, and were facing the real temptation, very real temptation, of going back to Judaism. There they were, this small, huddled group. There was not a mega church. They were not looking at that which uh, in the natural realm could be seen as anything but meager. And so the writer was saying, but don't go back. There's nothing to go back to, and what you have is better. Jesus is better. Everything about him is better. He's better. He's better. Get it. Understand it. There's nothing to go back to. He's far better, in fact. So, Hebrews chapter 7. Let's go there. Hebrews chapter 7. You should have uh, either a finger or some way of getting there quickly. Hebrews chapter 7, and we read these words. For this, Melchizedek. Stop there. Melchizedek is formed by two words, Melchi and Zedek, and it means king of righteousness. So his name means king, king of righteousness. In Jeremiah 23, no need to turn there, we read these words. Verse 5, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, The Lord is our righteousness. Adonai Sidkeno in Hebrew. Later in Jeremiah, we read these words, chapter 33, verse 16. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it, Jerusalem, will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Once again, Adonai Sidkenu. It's interesting here, the bride takes the bridegroom's name. The Lord, our righteousness. Interesting. Very, very interesting. King of righteousness, king of peace. For this Melchizedek, it says, king of righteousness, king of peace. When I look at this, uh, Isaiah chapter 9 comes to mind. I know you know this. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, or source of everlasting life. Prince of peace, of the increase of his government, and of peace there'll be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom. He's a king. You can't have a kingdom without a king. To establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord 
The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will do this. God says, I'm going to get this done. I'm zealous for this. He will sit on the throne of David. 1 Corinthians 1.30, let me quote it. He, Christ, is made to us righteousness. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. He himself is our peace. So, king of righteousness, king of peace. Psalm 85.10. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. I believe that's true. In the person of Jesus Christ, righteousness and peace are brought together in one person. King of Salem is the next word in Hebrews. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem. It's related to the word shalom, which of course means peace. Notice the Salem in the name Jerusalem, city of peace. So, Melchizedek, his name means king of righteousness, is also king of of Salom, king of peace. He's king of righteousness. He's king of peace. Then the next word, priest. Priest of the Most High God. Priest. So Melchizedek, following along, is both a king and a priest. Now that's significant because that was something that no Levitical priest under the Old Covenant could ever be. Both a king and a priest. You were either a king or a priest. You couldn't be king and priest, and this Melchizedek was both priest. Hear this from Zechariah 6, 13. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne, and there shall be a priest on his throne. A priest on the throne, that means the priest is the king, and the council of peace shall be between them both, between the two offices. He's king and priest. This is what was prophesied, unheard of in the Levitical system, but prophesied in the Old Covenant. Keep your place in Hebrews. Back to Genesis. You may still be there. Genesis 14. I'd like us to look at this. In fact, verse 18, let me quote it. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, he was priest of God Most High. Again, king and priest. Priest of God Most High in Hebrew, El Elyon. And that's what is picked up in Hebrews, priest of the Most High God. That's what we read in English, and it is a translation of the Greek, which goes back to the Hebrew, El Elyon, priest of God Most High. Now, all of that's a mouthful, but get this, already we should be intrigued. This Melchizedek, as mysterious as he is, has two offices where no one in the Levitical system was able to have that themselves. They could not have both offices. He had both. And then the author in Hebrews 7, if we go back there, then describes the circumstances of his meeting with Abraham. He met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings. Do you read that in Hebrews 7? When did he meet him? When Abraham was returning from the slaughter of the kings. Don't miss the significance of this. Now I'm going to read something to you. It's a bit of a lengthy passage, but let's sit back and enjoy. On June 27th, 1976, Kent Hughes writes this, Armed operatives 
for the popular front of the liberation of Palestine surprised the 12 crew members of an Air France jetliner and its 91 passengers, hijacking it to a destination unknown. The plane was tracked heading for Central Africa, where indeed it did land under the congenial auspices of Ugandan President Idi Amin. And there it remained, apparently secure at Antebi Airport, where the hijackers spent the next seven days preparing for the next move. The hijackers were, by all estimates, in the driver's seat. However, 2,500 miles away in Tel Aviv, Israel, three Israeli C-130 Hercules transports secretly boarded a deadly force of Israeli commandos who within hours attacked Entebbe Airport under cover of darkness. In less than 60 minutes, the commandos rushed the old terminal, gunned down the hijackers, and rescued 110 of the 113 hostages. The next day, July 4th, Israel Premier Yitzhak Rabin triumphantly declared the mission will become a legend, which it surely has. Israel's resolve and stealth in liberating a people is admired by her friends and begrudged by her enemies. Continuing the quote. Actually, Israel's resolve is nothing new because the same quality can be traced all the way back to the very beginning of the Hebrew nation in the prowess of their father Abraham. The kidnappers in his day were a coalition of four Canaanite kings headed by King Chedorlaomer who attacked the Transjordan, defeating the city-states of Sodom and her neighbors and carrying off a large number of hostages, including Abraham's nephew, Lot. Undaunted, undaunted, Abraham recruited 318 trained men. You'll read of that, Genesis chapter 14, verse 14. These were proto-commandos. And he raised them up from his own household and took off in hot pursuit until he closed in on the kidnappers somewhere close to Damascus. We don't normally think of Abraham in these terms, but this is what he did. And there, under the cover of night, he deployed his his small forces in a surprise attack. His troops, riding bawling camels and slavering horses broke down on the hijackers and their hostages. Deadly arrows flew in the night and bloody swords were raised, gleaming in the dusty moonlight, and the four kings were put to flight. The Genesis account gives this Entebbe-like summary of Abraham's success. Then he brought back all the possessions. This is Genesis 14, 16. And also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Abraham could be formidable. It was not wise to mess with Father Abraham. So, when Abraham returned to his home, after the slaughter of the kings, he was a hero at the pinnacle of martial military success. Can you see him proudly astride his lumbering camel, smeared with the dirt and blood of battle? leading his 318 proud men plus Lot and all the captives and all the plunder through Jerusalem. If so, you can feel, you can feel uh, exactly what's going on. You 
have the feel necessary to begin to appreciate Abraham's strange mystic encounter with a shadowy figure of immense grandeur, Melchizedek, the priest king of Salem. Think about all of that. He was at the height of success. He just won a campaign. He'd done a lot. Hebrews chapter 7, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Who did what? Melchizedek blessed Abraham. And to him, Abraham apportioned the tenth part of everything, He is first by translation of his name, King of Righteousness. We've established that. And then he is also King of Salem. Many believe that is a precursor to what became Jerusalem. That is King of Peace. There's a lot going on here. There's a great deal to talk about. And there was this two-way relationship between Melchizedek and Abraham. And the writer wants us to understand that, and God wants to understand it. This is the Word of God, as we've established. Firstly, Melchizedek provided bread and wine. Bread and wine, you ever heard of that? Outward symbols of the new covenant. What's significant about this? Bread and wine were never, I repeat, never offered by Levitical priests. There was no instruction, serve bread and wine to the people, but that is what happened in this encounter. Four centuries before the Levitical priesthood, Melchizedek, when he met Abraham, gave him bread and wine. Let's go to Matthew. Chapter 26. We're actually going somewhere as we stay in our pews. Matthew 26. Look at verse 26. This is, of course, the Lord's Supper instituted. This is Matthew 26, verse 26. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant. Luke says, Of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. All right. Once again, bread and wine was never offered by the Levitical priesthood. So it was not a random thing Jesus was doing here. It was deliberate. Jesus was doing this with intention. He gave them bread and wine. Deliberately, on purpose. And when Jesus did this at the Last Supper, he was saying this, I am in the order of Melchizedek. And if they knew their Bibles, if they'd read Genesis and understood the three verses there in Genesis, the lights were going to come on for them. What's happening here? Jesus is not saying, I'm the best kind of Levitical priest. No, I'm in a different category. I'm in the order of Melchizedek. And he was 
proclaiming that by what he did. What's he saying? I'm in the order of Melchizedek, folks. And therefore the priesthood of Melchizedek is reappearing. Do you see that? Significant. Secondly, Abraham offered tithes. Tithing, the word tithe simply means a tenth. You and I don't need to pray about what a tithe is. It's a tenth. What comes in? A tenth would be a certain number. It's very easy to work out. If $100 comes in, a tithe would be $10. If $10,000 comes in, a tithe would be $1,000. You don't need to go off into the woods and pray and say, Lord, what is a tithe? A tithe is a tenth. And Abraham offered tithe to Melchizedek, and this was 400 years before the law of Moses. And that was an appropriate way to acknowledge the high priest, the priest here. Now, bread and wine, tithes. Those are two practices of the church which are very ancient. Receiving the bread and wine and bringing our tithes. As I've thought through this, here at King's Church, do you know we bring them together? We receive the bread and wine in communion and we bring our tithes. We come forward and do those things. That's how ancient this is. This doesn't go back to 1942, folks. This has great ancient heritage. We've got biblical precedent for doing it. I don't think it's the only way to do it, that we bring them two together at the same time, the the, uh, receiving of the bread and wine and the giving of tithes, but I like it. We've got biblical precedent for it. We can't establish it as a law, but... I like it. We're following a very ancient tradition and amongst the people of God. And by doing this, receiving bread and wine and giving of our tithes, we are acknowledging Jesus as our high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now the lights begin to come on for us. Whether they came on for the disciples on that day, I don't know. But they can come on for us as we understand these things. Reading on in Hebrews, he is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. Now, Melchizedek served in the office of king in a certain place, Salem. Now, many believe that that's a reference to Jerusalem in its early stages. Then we have some intriguing words. Look at verse 3, Hebrews 7, verse 3. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Now, this is contrary to what was normal. People would have their heritage listed. That's not the case here. Melchizedek appears in our Bible without any record of his birth, his death, his parents or his descendants. And this has led some to believe that Melchizedek was perhaps an angel, or even Jesus in pre-incarnate form. There are people I respect who have that position regarding Melchizedek. While I have great respect for that view, it's not the view I hold. Commenting on this idea that uh, Melchizedek here is either an angel or a pre-incarnate Christ, 
Kent Hughes writes this, such interpretations are unnecessary because the writer is simply using a rabbinical method of interpretation from silence. His point is that the Genesis account does not mention Melchizedek's parents or genealogy or when he was born or died, thereby providing a fitting type of what would be fleshed out in the qualifications of Christ. I believe the text takes me in a different direction from saying it's an angel or Jesus in a pre-incarnate form. And there's a number of reasons for that. And that is one of them. Uh, He had an office in a place. He was king in Salem based on God's call and not based on his heredity. So he held an office in a city, and that's uh, evidence number one. But evidence number two for where I come down on this is the next, are the next words that we read. Verse, uh, the verse continues in Hebrews, but resembling, do you see that? But resembling the Son of God, being made like the Son of God, other translations read. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So he resembled the Son of God. He was made like the Son of God. And here's the point. All Levitical priests held their office of priesthood by way of limitation. They couldn't continue forever. In fact, uh, scholars uh, historically outline the fact that Levitical priests could serve for no more than 30 years. And the fact is, Melchizedek's departure from his office is not mentioned in Scripture And it's therefore a prophetic portrait of the eternal priesthood of Jesus. That's where I land. Now, Melchizedek's priesthood was greater than that of the Levitical priesthood. Now, again, we're Gentiles. We've got to get a clue. This is how God dealt with people by means of a priest and a priestly system and sacrifices. We just think we'll do things our way. And God says, no, you won't. Uh, God never goes around and says to Moses, find out from the Amalekites what kind of service they will come to, how long it will be, what kind of music they like, how long any sermon should be, and let's do things for them, be seeker-sensitive. The Bible says there is no God-seeker, so why build a service for people that don't exist? Just a thought. There is only one seeker, and that's God, God seeks those who worship him in spirit and in truth. And if you find yourself seeking God, it's because God first sought you. He came after you. You weren't looking for him. Oh yes, I was into this and I was into that. I was into the Baha'i faith and then I became a Mormon. Then I went into New Age again. And then you were running from God, putting different clothes on every time you took a bath. That's our nature after the fall. We hide from God. And unless we come to the true God, it's, from God's perspective, a means of trying to avoid Him. Oh, He's really sincere. He, he's really sincere. He, he, he's now studying the Jehovah's Witness faith. No, He's running from God. And when God comes after you, guess what? He brings you to Himself. A stranger they will not follow. And He brings you into truth. The truth of God who he is. One of the things I love about our service is the fact we recite creeds. I'm thinking, that's what we believe around here. You got a problem with that? Sorry, that's the God who's going to be worshipped here, the God who is Trinity. 
Oneness Pentecostals, that's your moment to leave the service. If you can't join with us in, tra- in praising the triune God, this is the God who will be worshipped here. If you went in the first century to someone's home and they said, uh, come uh, have a meal with us, and they started the meal, the goddess Diana has provided the food and we will worship them, uh, worship Diana in this meal, with this meal, and celebrate her. That's your cue to leave. And at the start of the service, you'll notice we start with the call to worship the triune God. In other words, you come for any other purpose, that's your cue to lead. Here, the God of Trinity will be worshipped. One God, three persons. Amen. Amen. So, Melchizedek is superior to Levitical priesthood. That doesn't kind of rot our socks as Gentiles. What was the sermon about today? Well, Levitical priesthood is inferior to the Melchizedek priesthood. Yeah, pass the beans. I mean, what do we say about that? Do we get it? The whole life of Israel, the whole centuries of God revealing himself, line upon line, line upon line, line upon line, through the sacrificial system, through the setting up of the priesthood, in just a few verses, God says, Jesus is better than all of that. Every bit, of be- every bit of it. You can look at any aspect of the Levitical system and there's nothing to go back to. Hebrew Christians, don't go back. You may face persecution. You may be hounded. You may be isolated from society. Don't go back. Don't go back. So, how is Melchizedek's superiority outlined? Four ways. Number one, Abraham gave him tithes. Number two, He, that's Melchizedek, blessed Abraham. Three, he, Melchizedek's office, continues forever. We see that in Psalm 110, verse 4, already quoted. And then four, through Abraham, even Levi gave him tithes. Again, what's the big deal with that? It's massive. Verse 4 of Hebrews 7, See how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. So Abraham's done the big thing. He's captured what was taken, including people. And he gave Melchizedek a tithe, a tenth, establishing the superiority of Melchizedek. You give in tithes to someone who's superior. And the blessing that comes from Melchizedek means this. Melchizedek was superior to Abraham because he was the one who blessed Abraham. And that's the argument from Hebrews 7. You might think, well, have you got anything relevant to Americans? (laughs) Yeah, this is it. Hebrews 7 is relevant. You see, we don't make the Bible relevant. It is Relevant. The job of the preacher is to show how it's relevant. Amen. Amen. Verse 5. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people. That is from their brothers, though these are also are also are descended from Abraham. Verse 6. But this man, talking of Melchizedek, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Again, he wants us to grasp this. We've read it in Genesis. He's establishing it. Abraham paid tithes 
And Melchizedek blessed him. And here's what is being established. Verse 7. Make a note of it. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. That's the point I just made. The one who blesses is superior to the one who is blessed. That's why when at the end of a service we have the benediction, bene means good, diction means word, good word, God is the superior blessing us inferiors. Never the other way around. So the inferior is blessed by the superior. There's a reason why pastors avoid this passage. (laughs) But if we can grasp it, it's thrilling. Tithing to another establishes the recipient's superiority. It's saying, you're bigger than me. I establish that through this act of tithing. I give to you, not the other way around. I bless you. No, I give to you. I give you, and then you bless me. And the one who blesses is greater than the one being blessed. In these two ways, Melchizedek's superiority to Abraham is established. Here's where it's very difficult for us because we don't think this way. Think as a Hebrew. That's what we're trying to get us to do in this series through Hebrews. Do you realize this? It's quite amazing when you say it. The Hebrews were Hebrews. They thought Hebrew. They thought in the ways of Israel. And we're just catching up. We were without God and without covenant. That was not the case with them. And so they were thinking a certain way. And so he didn't have to establish things. They knew these things. And he could quote Genesis and they understood. They understood. So, Abraham was inferior to Melchizedek. And here's the Hebrew way of thinking. Levi, who was not yet born, was in the loins of Abraham when he did that. We don't think that way, do we? We think, well, was he a twinkle in Father Abraham's eyes? And what? Will... No. He was in the loins of Abraham so that when Abraham did a thing, Levi was doing it in him. Though he was to come later on in time, Levi came from Abraham. And when Abraham did a thing, Levi was doing it in him. We don't think that way, but that's the argument here. And we need to understand it. The Levitical system came, first of all, from Abraham. Without Abraham, there wouldn't have been a Levi. That's the point. And so when Abraham did a thing, it establishes where the Levitical priesthood was in relationship to Melchizedek. And the Levitical priesthood is inferior to Melchizedek's. Levitical priesthood inferior to Melchizedek. And that's the point. Christians, don't go back. To go back would mean that you value 
Christ's sacrifice and his priesthood as nothing. You trample the flesh on the Son of God, crucifying him again. Don't do it. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything of your Bible. Don't go back. Verse 8. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, men who die. But in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. In other words, Melchizedek represents a living and superior priesthood. Verse 9. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, that's what happens under the Levitical system, paid tithes through Abraham. See, that's the point I just made. He, Levi, paid tithes through Abraham. When Abraham did what he did, Levi was doing it in him. For he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Once again, tithing to another establishes the recipient's superiority. When we tithe, we're showing that God is superior to us. And the one who blesses is greater than the one being blessed. And so, case closed. Melchizedek and his priesthood is superior to the Levitical priesthood. See, Abraham stands at the very head of the people of Israel, the father of the nation, and all who followed after him. And that being the case, Levi, who would then follow after him, being in the loins of Abraham, when Abraham tied to Melchizedek, it established the office of Melchizedek as superior. He is without genealogy, without beginning or end. And he prefigured Jesus who had no priestly genealogy. Now get this. Jesus is a priest. He's our great high priest. We've already read of that in the book of Hebrews. Consider Jesus, the great high priest of our confession. What is established here is it's not that you trace Jesus' priesthood by means of his descendants, but he goes all the way back to the type of him, which was Melchizedek, which was superior to anything you could find in any list. This is amazing. Jesus is priest forever. That could never be said about any Levitical priest. He's going to die someday. He's going to go out of office someday. But Jesus lives forever and is in the order of Melchizedek forever. I remember hearing a story of a man who was looking for a wife online and uh, looking at dating websites. And The story goes like this. He was about to meet this person he'd been corresponding with. He'd had pictures of this person but he didn't show up at the airport when she was coming into town and she was trying to get hold of him like where are you and I don't know how true the story is but it goes like this he's saying well why are you calling or why are you even coming well I I, I want to meet you well he says look I don't want to meet you I've got your picture that's enough for me now as silly as that is that's the picture of going back to the old covenant Levitical system if you understand who Jesus is. He's the fulfillment of everything. Once you have him, you're not satisfied when going back to the picture. 
And for a man to say, I don't need to meet you, I've got your picture, he doesn't know him. He doesn't know Christ. To go back means you have no idea who it is you're dealing with. He's the fulfillment of everything and he's better, better, better. We've got more than a photo. The Old Testament gives us the photo. This is what he'll look like when he comes. Now he's come. We don't need the photo. We can enjoy him. We don't establish the feast. We don't go through the feast and we say, I'm going to celebrate the feast the way they did. We don't slaughter lambs and put blood on our doorposts as they did. We have Jesus, and he's the fulfillment of everything in the Passover. He's the fulfillment of everything in redemption. We don't need to go back. We don't need to go back, and we should never go back. And if we go back, we have no idea who we're dealing with. All you have in Judaism is a religion with Levitical priests which are inferior to the superior priesthood of Melchizedek. And Jesus has come in the order of Melchizedek. And that's what we're reading in Hebrews. You mean it's that simple? Yeah, it's that simple. It's thrilling. You and I have something better than anyone could imagine who is of Israeli descent, who doesn't embrace Jesus as Messiah. I remember being on a plane. It was a plane ride from New York to Europe. And there was a gentleman next to me who never spoke to me the, the whole plane flight, and uh, he was very Jewish and had uh, things he was doing with his arm and bands, and he was reading his first five books of the, New Test- uh, the Old Testament the entire ride. I felt a little bad because I was looking at the Sky magazine. <laughs> After a while, I got my New Testament, just read a little bit of Romans, but I was, I was feeling it like, this guy's just so zealous. And then at different times, there were times when he got up and everybody else who was Jewish, who were part of a party, about 30 of them, stood in the aisles. It was actually time for the, for the dinner to be served and they messed everything up because they wouldn't move. And they were finding out from somebody where Jerusalem was and so they were facing Jerusalem and bowing down and praying and people were trying to, the servers were trying to serve food. They had to wait. They would not move. And I'm thinking... This is a world I have no idea about. This is so unusual. And I'm thinking very inferior. Like, I'm not as committed as they are. Look at what they do. They are very annoying. We can't get our food. We cannot get our food because they've got to pray at this time. But they were zealous beyond zealous. And then I realized I got more than him. I got more than all of them. I have Christ. And unless they have Christ... All they have is a barren religion. And they've said no to the very fulfillment of all they supposedly are praying for. They say, I don't want him. He came to his own, and his own received him not. John chapter 1. But to as many as do receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, I'm reading a little bit of Romans, I've read it for a few minutes, and because I have Christ, 
I have the fulfillment of everything they're trying to get to and hope for and pray for. But by rejecting the Messiah, they have no salvation. Oh, they're just saved because they're Jewish. Read your Bible. Romans chapter 10. As much as Paul loves his fellow Jews, he says, my prayer to God, verse 1, is for their salvation. You don't go and come into the kingdom because of physical heritage. You, become, you come into the kingdom because you're born again of the Holy Spirit and recognize Jesus as Messiah. And you receive the gospel, which is this. God, the second person of the Trinity, became a man. A Jewish man who fulfilled the law, who was born of a virgin, fulfilling prophecy. A virgin shall conceive and lived a sinless life and died an atoning death on the cross, fulfilling every type of what the Lamb would do for the people of Israel. And John was able to say of him, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Do you see him? He bore our sins in his body on the tree. And just as a Levitical priest would hear from the father of the family what the sins of the family was, and then speak those things over the lamb or over the goat, and then the goat or the lamb was slain in place of the family. Instead of the family being slain, the lamb was slain to cover the sins of the family. So God has taken all the sins of all those who would ever believe on him and laid them on Jesus, it was transferred to him on the cross, and he bore our sins for us this holy Lamb of God. Three days later after his death, he rose again from the dead. But before he died, he was able to say, it's finished, it's done, it's fulfilled, paid in full. We don't need to slaughter any lambs today because the lamb has been slaughtered for us. He rose again from the dead. He's at the place of all authority. And anyone who believes, anyone who repents and believes this good news is saved. Whether they be Jew or Gentile, there's one gospel. There's not a gospel for Jews and a gospel for Gentiles. There's one gospel. And that's why in heaven, there won't be multiple services. A Jewish service and then a Gentile service. You read Ephesians 2. He's broken that wall down. And we all sing the same song. And Abraham will be singing, I've been justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, all to the glory of God alone. And we'll be singing, yeah, Abraham, we're in the same thing. We've been redeemed by the same one, the same way based on the sure foundation of Scripture alone, we've been justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, all glory to Him alone, and we're singing the same songs of redemption. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, for He's redeemed us by His blood. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Jesus, our priest, our great high priest, after the order of Melchizedek, forever. In Jesus' name, amen.